Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We will not be here for the next two weeks because of the holidays. The natural stopping place that I would like to reach is four chapters from now. But the good news is the chapters go by pretty quickly. I think you're probably accustomed to the arguments now. In fact, when you sit at home and read the book of Job, we're kind of in the section right about chapter 20, chapter 21. That's where people start kind of dozing off and kind of skipping a couple of chapters and getting forward to Elihu showing up so that they can finally get into the part where God shows up. This part of, of chapter 20, chapter 21, though, is, is really interesting from a philosophical standpoint. So don't let the repetition of the argumentation cause you to kind of check out, because I find this portion really, really interesting. The argument that's going to be presented now by uh, Zophar, and this is very common thinking, he's going to say that God rewards the good and punishes the bad. That in this lifetime, on the planet, if people are punished, that's because they're bad. If people are rewarded and blessed, that's because they're good. And that thinking permeates so much of modern religion. The problem with the concept that God punishes the evil here on the planet during their lifetime, the problem with that idea, with that concept, with that theology is it's not true. You can just you can look around the world and see that it's just not true. How many of you have ever known someone who's clearly not Christian, in fact, maybe even anti-Christian? I've known some rich rock and rollers in my life who had successful and enjoyable, agreeable lives. And so Zophar is going to argue, well, you know, God always punishes the evil. Obviously, the implication being, Job, you're being punished, so you must be evil. And then Job is the one who's going to say, but that's not true. That, that's not a fact. If you just look around in the world, there are plenty of evil people doing just Fine, life seems to be good for them. So his conclusion is that the real justice that God meets out has to be an eternal justice, has to be the justice that takes place post-mortem, after we're dead. And that has always been the Christian hope, that even as life is difficult down here, that someday we're going to be in the place of joy and glory, and then it will all have been worth it. But Zophar's here and now kind of theology is, well, God rewards the good and he punishes the bad, and you're being punished, so you, you must clearly be bad. And I like the way Job replies because he replies with basic reality. No, look around. That's not the way it works. And then one more time, they're going to go around, except only two of them are going to go around this third time. Eliphaz is going to start out, and Eliphaz is going to go, 
one step further than he's gone so far. We've seen him be pretty mean, but now he's going to go beyond just calling Job to repent and saying that Job is evil in some generic way. He's now going to say, you're guilty of specific crimes. He's going to list crimes that Job must be guilty of. Now, he has no evidence for any of the things that he's accusing Job of outside of the fact that Job was a rich man. And so he's going to adopt the theological and sociological position that is also very common in the world today, that if you're rich, you must have gotten those riches on the backs of somebody else. You had to have oppressed somebody. You had to have stolen from somebody. You, had to, you couldn't have gotten that by your hard work. And therefore, you don't deserve it. If you're rich, you're just somehow inherently evil is the way that the argument is going to be presented. So that's the overview of what we're going to look at tonight. And there's not a great deal of explanation that needs to be added to it outside of a couple of phrases and clarifying those. So we should be able to get all four chapters. Thus endeth the introduction. We can now read for four chapters. You ready? Ready. Let's dig in. Chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Job has just said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He has just said that his confidence has to be in God because it, it can't be in any man. It can't be in any people. So he's made a really good argument for his own integrity and the sovereignty of God. And Zophar the Naamathite answered, Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond. So he's saying, sure, you've said what you want to say. Sure, you've made your good argument. But your good argument disquiets my mind, and I can't keep those thoughts to myself. I have to respond. Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me. I'm really put off by your claim that you're innocent in all this and that God is doing this by his sovereignty and that you think God is going to be both your judge and your advocate and he's going to show that you've actually been righteous through all of this. Your confidence is in the very God that's judging you. Well, I am just offended by that. How often have you talked to people about sovereign God? And they'll say, your God is a monster. They'll say some negative thing about what you believe and the God of the Bible because it offends them. Well, that's the same way that Zophar is talking here. You've insulted me. I listen to the reproof, which insults me. And the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. By the way, do you know any people like that? I know I do. They're all on Facebook. But they're... You know I know better than you do. I posted a meme the other day on Facebook. I don't know how many of you saw it. It looked like a Dr. Seuss book. And it said, I'm right and you're wrong. Written by everybody on the internet. It's a lot funnier as a meme, apparently. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I laughed right. Well, I thought it was quite amusing. So here's his argument. And again, he's just going to argue from everybody knows this, Job, and everybody's always known this, Job. Do you know this from old, from the establishment of man on earth? 
that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary. Is that true? I know plenty of happy, wicked people. Though his loftiness reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds, that's how high and lifted up this person might be, he perishes forever like his refuse. So he's drawing a contrast. Even though he's as high as the clouds, he comes down to refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream and they cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no more, and his place no longer beholds him. His sons favor the poor, and his hands give back his wealth. In other words, he's saying, even if you see a high and lifted up rich man, once he dies, there's no telling what his children might do with all that wealth. In fact, the children will probably end up giving it back to the poor, and so everything he collected is actually for nothing. They're going to end up giving away his wealth anyway. <coughs> That's just another contrast, like verse 11 that says, His bones are full of youthful vigor, but his bones lay down with him in the dust. In other words, though he's rich and he looks like he's got all this vigor and all this energy, in the end he's just going to die, so it's all for naught. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go but holds it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. Now that's a, a really nice thought. It would be nice if all evil people who ever accumulated anything and got rich, it would be nice if when they sat down to eat, it became the venom of cobras in their stomach, except that that's just not true. Plenty of rich people sit down and have very happy lives and very good meals and, and pass on their riches to the next generation and the next, and family wealth continues on. So the argument that he's making here, though it sounds convicting, ends up being an empty argument. Verse 15, he swallows riches, but then he will vomit them up. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras, and the viper's tongue slays him. He does not look at the streams and rivers flowing with honey and curds. Instead, he returns what he has attained. And he cannot swallow it. In other words, he cannot ingest it. And to the riches of his trading, well, he cannot even enjoy them. Is that true? Here, uh, we'll test this. Do you think Donald Trump likes being rich? Yes. <laughs> you think he's enjoying being rich? Yeah, I think so. H how did he get that rich? Through his trading, through his businesses, through his work. And, oh, by the way, through the money that his father passed down to him. And then he didn't disperse it and give it all away to the poor. He actually continued his trading and became even more rich. So again, this statement, he returns what he has attained and he cannot swallow it. And to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. Well, that's not true. And the reason I keep insisting, but that's not true, is that Job's going to say, that's not true. And you can look around the world as it is today and say to yourself, eh, that's not true. 
there are plenty of rich, wealthy, evil people who seem to be enjoying life just fine. So if there's going to be any justice, it has to be eternal justice. Verse 19 says, For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. Okay, now we know how he got rich. Now we know what his opinion is of rich men. Rich people got rich because they oppressed and forsook the poor. And he has seized a house which he has not built. So what's he basically saying? He's saying, Job, you were rich once. That's just proof of what a bad man you are. Because he knew no quiet within him. He does not retain anything that he desires. Nothing remains for him to devour, and therefore his prosperity does not endure. In other words, have you ever heard the phrase, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money? Well, that's essentially what he's saying here, that at some point, the rich man who's devouring people, devouring their livelihoods and riches and taking on houses that they didn't even build, eventually they're going to run out of it. Nothing remains for him to devour. And that's why his prosperity does not endure, because he ran out of people to take advantage of. In the fullness of his plenty, he will be cramped. In other words, once he's got so much, it's going to restrict him. And the hands of everyone who suffers will come against him. Is that true? No, it's not. We've seen plenty of people in this lifetime who have risen up and even those who have gotten rich on the backs of others. I won't name names, but I think at this moment everybody's thinking of someone. But do the hands of everyone who suffers eventually come against him? No, actually, oftentimes those people live a decent life and then die. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he is eating. He may flee from the iron weapon, but then the bronze bow will pierce him. In other words, if he escapes a sword, he's going to get shot through with an arrow. There's no escaping. One way or another, God's going to get him. Then it is drawn forth. He's talking about the arrow that's going to pierce him. It's drawn forth and it comes out his back. I don't know how much you know about being shot with an arrow. But if you're shot from the front with an arrow, you don't pull it out this way because the tip of the arrow then will tear at your skin. The only way to get the arrow out of you is to break it and push it through your body so it comes out your back. That's what he's describing here. It is drawn forth and it comes out his back. Even the glittering point of that arrow will go through his gall or his inner parts and terrors come upon him. Complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasures and unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him and the increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of his anger, in the day of God's anger. This is the wicked man's portion from God even the heritage that is decreed to him by God. Now, if you just took that chapter completely out of its context, and you didn't mention who was saying it, but you just said, hey, this is what's in the Bible, that sounds like a very good philosophical theological concept. 
that God always, in every case, always punishes anybody who ever takes advantage of other people and enriches himself through it. Any man that is evil and doing well, God always, always punishes him and he can never enjoy his life and his food is going to make him sick. And that's a really good thought, except that it's not true. It just doesn't happen in experience, in real world happenings. So Job's going to point that out. In other words, Job's now going to drive a truck through everything he just said. Then Job answered. First, Job says, now listen carefully to me. Understand what I'm saying. Listen carefully to my speech. And let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. And then after I have spoken, you may mock. But he's saying, at least listen to me first. At least hear what I'm really saying here. Because he realizes Zophar is not really going to understand this. So he's saying, please just listen to me before you argue back. As for me, is my complaint to man? And why should I not be impatient? In other words, Job's complaint so far has always been with God. His complaint is that God has done this to him, though he was a righteous, upright man who eschewed evil. Nevertheless, God did this. He's saying to his friends, you're arguing with me like I'm arguing with you. But my argument isn't with you. You didn't do this to me. You came and found me in this condition because God did this to me. My complaint is against the one who did it, and that's not a man. So as for me, is my complaint to man? And why should I not be impatient? In other words, the way you guys keep answering me as if I'm arguing against you is really trying my patience. As for me, is my complaint to man? And why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished and put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, even when I recognize my own condition, even when I realize the state I'm in, I'm disturbed. You ought to be disturbed by what you're seeing in me. You shouldn't be arguing with me. And horror takes hold of my flesh. Why doesn't this horrify you? Why do the wicked still live and continue on and also become very powerful? In other words, if everything you just said is true, then why is the reality the complete opposite? The reality is that the wicked still live and they still continue on and they still become very powerful. Verse 8, their descendants are established with them in their sight, in their own lifetime. They see their own descendants established and their offspring are before their eyes, which is a really interesting phrase considering that Job's offspring had all been killed. But he's saying even with the evil, the offspring are always before them. Their children are with them, and their children get rich after them. Verse 9, their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God on them. In other words, the punishment of God is not obvious against the evil. Have you ever known someone who you thought, boy, I wish God would punish them? They're just 
blaspheming so badly or they're just living so wrongly or they're living in such open opposition to everything that is godly. I just wish that God would come down and correct them. And yet he doesn't seem to. And that's what Job's getting at. Everything seems fine with them. Their houses are safe from fear and neither is the rod of God on them. His ox mates without fail. In other words, they have plenty of cattle, which is how they would gauge riches and wealth in those days. His cow calves, and he does not abort. And they send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children are skipping about. And they sing to the timbrel and the harp, and they rejoice at the sound of the flute, and they spend their days in prosperity, and then suddenly they go down to Sheol. In other words, they live their whole life in prosperity and happiness, and happy children, and their home is safe, and then one day they die. So their whole life seems fine. So where is this philosophy of yours that God always punishes the evil? Now, the whole point of Job saying all this is that the premise behind Zophar's argument, in fact, the premise behind all three friends' argument, is God always punishes the evil. You're, you're being punished, therefore you must be evil. You must have done something, because God always punishes sin, and you must have sinned, or else God wouldn't be punishing you. And he's undermining that argument by saying, wait, your premise that God always punishes the evil isn't true. Just look at the fact that there are people in the world who are evil and rich and do fine and have great kids and their house is safe and they live that way till they die. And they say, once they've died, verse 14, and they say to God, depart from us. So these are not good people. They say, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we might serve him? And what would we gain if we were to entreat him or pray to him? So these are clearly evil, ungodly people, and yet they've lived fine lives. Verse 16, behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Now that phrase, behold, their prosperity is not in their hand, is Job's way of saying the very fact that they got rich in this lifetime is God's doing. God's sovereign, God's in charge. And so if they have had good successful lives and successful children or riches and everything else, it's because God has given them all that, even though they say, depart from us, God. We don't even desire the knowledge of you. Now, again, I think we can all relate to our own experience and say, yeah, we know people who want nothing to do with God. And yet they seem to be having just fine lives. Behold, their prosperity didn't even come from them. It's not even in their hand. And the counsel of the wicked, since you keep accusing me and making me out to be wicked, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? He's, he's asking this now to say, what you've just declared, how often does that actually happen? How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or how often does their calamity actually fall on them? Well, the answer is not very often. If that happens, it's more an aberration than a rule. 
Does God apportion destruction for them in his anger? Are they as straw like before the wind? And are they like chaff which a storm carries away? That's what you claim, but that doesn't seem to be the way it is. In fact, verse 19, you say, God stores away a man's iniquity for his sons. I say, let God repay him so that he may know it. In other words, your philosophy was the children are going to suffer because of the bad men. Because you yourself see that the men may not ever actually be punished in their own life. So you have to extend it out and say, yeah, but the children might be punished. Or the children are going to suffer because of the fathers. And Job answers back, I say that if God's going to punish the evil, he should punish them to their face right here and now so that they know it. So that they see that it's God repaying them. But that's not what happens. Let his own eye see his decay, verse 20. And let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him? In other words, once the rich man's dead, how much does he really care what happens to his children? He just had a great life. He just wins. It all worked for him. So what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is then cut off? Verse 22. You seem to be theologizing here, he's saying to Zophar. You seem to be insisting that you know what God's like and you're telling God what he ought to do, but that's not the way it works. So verse 22. Can anyone teach God knowledge? In that he judges those on high. In other words, God judges angels. God judges the denizens of heaven, hell, and earth. So if that's the case that God has such great knowledge that he can judge every created being, then how do you think that you're going to teach that God something? And yet here you are trying to tell God what he ought to do. Can anyone teach God knowledge? In that he judges those on high. One dies in his full strength. He's talking about, again, evil people, rich people, well-to-do people, the people who Zophar has just announced. He says one dies in his full strength, being completely at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat. In other words, he's had lots of food his whole life. The marrow of his bones is moist. So in other words, he's not crippled up. While another dies with a bitter soul, never even tasting anything good. But together, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they've had a satisfying life or a bitter life, they both die. Together, they lie down in the dust and worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. So Job's saying, I get what you're doing. I know why you're saying what you're saying. I know why you're philosophizing what you're philosophizing. Because if what you say was true, then clearly I am guilty. But I'm hip to your tricks. I know what you're doing. By the way, Job never used the phrase hip to your tricks. But I know what you're up to. Behold, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman? And where is the tent 
the dwelling place of the wicked. In other words, you think that you can differentiate between the house that a noble man would be in, a good man, a righteous man would be in a a major house because God blesses the good. But where is the tent, the low life, the dwelling place of the wicked? Because you think God always punishes the wicked. That's what you say, according to Job. Have you ever asked wayfaring men, which are travelers, do you not recognize their witness? In other words, as they're traveling, they've seen a whole lot more than you've seen. And have you ever asked them what they've beheld in this life, in this world? Verse 30, for the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. In other words, now Job is saying, the wicked are going to get their just desserts, just not in this lifetime. The wicked are going to be judged and they're going to be punished, just not yet. In other words, what you're seeing with your eyes on planet Earth right now is not the end of the story. And you can't conclude that just because somebody's doing well, that God is blessing them because they're good, righteous people. And if somebody's doing poorly, that means that they're evil. So you can't make those kind of obvious black and white distinctions because even a traveler knows. Oftentimes, rich men, evil men have perfectly good, satisfying lives right up until the day they die. So then the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity and they will be led forth at the day of fury. Who will confront him about his actions and who will repay him for what he has done? In other words, if God's not doing it, are you doing it so far? Are you the one who's going to make all this justice? Are you the social justice warrior, Zophar? Are you the one who's going to level the playing field here for us? Who's going to repay the evil one for everything he's done? While he's carried to the grave, men are going to end up watching over his tomb. The clods of the valley will gently cover him. He's going to go down to death in peace. Moreover, All men are going to end up following him while countless ones go on before him. In other words, it's not just now, it's always been that way. Countless evil men have had good lives, had good deaths. And so the only time that it's all going to be recompensed is in that day of calamity and the day of God's fury. How then will you vainly comfort me For your answers remain full of falsehood. That's why previously when I was reading Zophar, I kept saying, but that's not right. But it's not true. Because Job here says, that's not true. Everything you just accused me of, not true. Everything you just observed and said, this is how God has to act. It's not true. And you think somehow you're comforting me with this? You're comforting me in vain. Because your answers remain full of falsehoods. So Eliphaz, who was the first one to speak, has now heard this conversation with Zophar. And you can tell that he's really getting ruffled. He's really getting upset now. And so he's just going to go both barrels at Job at this point. And he's just going to start throwing accusations at Job. 
And he's going to pick up on what Zophar has already said. Zophar has implied already that rich men got rich on the back of the people they made poor. So then he's going to say, well, you were rich, so clearly you're a bad man, and clearly you got what you got on the backs of the poor. He gets vicious at this point. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded, can a vigorous man be of any use to God? In other words, you're very busy, you're very talkative. In what way are you of any use to God? Is a wise man useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Because Job keeps arguing that he's righteous, that he's good. And he finally says, well, what good is that to God? God doesn't care if you're righteous or not. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? This is just too much for Eliphaz to get a hold of. He can't conceive of a God who's so sovereign that he would punish Job even though Job was upright. So he finally just asks the question. You keep saying you're upright. You keep saying that you are innocent of any of these charges that we're bringing against you. So let me ask you, is it because of this reverence you have for God that God is punishing you? Is it because you're so good and upright and so full of integrity? Is that why God is punishing you? So he's being sarcastic. He's making fun of Job's argument. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? You'll notice that so far none of them have actually come up with an actual sin that Job is actually guilty of. Now he's gone all the way to your wickedness is great. Your iniquity, your sin is without end. It just goes and goes and goes. Your iniquities are without end, for you have taken pledges from your brothers without cause. In other words, you've loaned to them, and then you've taken a pledge, like a coat or something from them. And you've stripped men naked. In other words, you didn't give them back their clothing that they gave you as a pledge when they came back to repay you. You're an evil man. You're a wicked man. Of course, there's no proof that Job ever did such a thing. But this is what he's being accused of now. To the weary, you've given no water to drink. And from the hungry, you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man. And the honorable man dwells on it. In other words, you're not honorable. That's why God is making you so sick and removing you from the earth because the earth doesn't belong to men like you. You're not an honorable man. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you and sudden dread terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and abundance of water covers you. So he's just accused him of several crimes that there's no evidence he's actually guilty of and then said everything you're going through, the stuff that Job has already declared. Job has already said that he was afraid, that he was terrified, that he was horrified. Even in his dreams, he has terror. And he says, well, the reason that's happening is because of all the orphans you're responsible for not taking care of. All the orphans that you crushed, all the widows that you sent away empty, all the weary that you didn't give water. You got rich, so clearly you're a bad man. 
verse 12. Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. And you say, what does God know? Actually, Job never said that. Actually, what Job said was, I wish God would tell me. I wish God was here so that I could contend with him and get some answers. But Eliphaz has twisted his words and said, and you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him so that he cannot see. And he walks on the vault or on the circle of the heavens. Will you keep to the ancient path? Now that's a reference again to the argument that was just made two chapters ago. When Zophar began by saying, do you not know? After he said these disquieting thoughts have caused him to answer. He said, do you not know this from old? From the establishment of men on the earth? That the triumphing of the wicked is short? So now Eliphaz is saying to him, will you keep to the ancient path? Will you understand what we've always understood? Will you agree with us? Because after all, we have the wisdom of the ancients on our side. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river? They said to God, depart from us. And they said, what can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. That's all the stuff that he said the wicked people say. Sure, sure, God has filled my house with all these good things, but I don't want any part of God. I don't care about the things of God. Depart from me. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. That's, that's what wicked men would say. And he's quoting Job, who said it. Job said, the counsel of the wicked is not with me. And he said, wicked people would say that. The righteous see and are glad. And the innocent mock them, saying, truly our adversaries are cut off. And their abundance the fire has consumed. Yield now. In other words, give up your fight. Yield now and be at peace with God. Then good will come to you. There's that same thinking that they're all three stuck in. Good people, God is going to bless. If you'll just repent, change your ways and do good, if you'll stop fighting against God, then God's going to bless you and everything's going to get good again. And Job knows that he already did have peace with God, that he already was righteous, that he already eschewed evil, and nevertheless, all this evil has befallen him. So this is empty, vain suggestion that's being made to him. Verse 22, please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. Eliphaz has just done something really interesting. I know I keep comparing this to preachers and people on Facebook, but I have to do it one more time. Eliphaz is saying something that is not true. And yet he's saying to Job, agree with me and you'll agree with the words of God. Because I'm speaking for God now. And people do that frequently. If you disagree with me, you disagree with God. Or even more amazing, they'll say things like, they'll quote Paul saying, if any man says anything other than what you've received, let him be anathema. 
And what they mean by it is, agree with me or you're anathematized. And the same trick is being used back here by Eliphaz. In other words, the more things change, the more things stay the same. The same arguments get run around and around. If you return to the Almighty, you're going to be restored. So receive instruction from his mouth. Establish his words in your heart. I'm speaking for God here. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, in other words, if you just bury and throw away all your riches and your gold, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. And you will pray to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. So Job has been saying, if God was here, I'd ask him questions. I wish God would hear my complaint and give me an answer. I wish I could understand what's happening. Eliphaz descends on that and says, if you were upright and if you would throw away all the riches you ever had, and if you would just trust God and confess against yourself that you are a sinner if you would just do all that then you'd pray to God and he'd hear you but he hasn't been hearing you so far because clearly you're evil and you will also decree a thing and it will be established for you that's name it claim it theology that's about as Pentecostal as it gets you'll also decree a thing and it will be established for you And light will shine on your ways. And when you are cast down, you will speak with confidence. And the humble person, he will save. In other words, he's not helping you because you're an arrogant man. You're proud. And you're responsible for all the sins that I've just listed. And you're not listening to me and I'm speaking for God. And I wish you would just humble yourself. Just quit fighting. A humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. So, in other words, if you would just admit that you're a sinner, then he'll deliver you. But as long as you don't admit that, you're never going to be delivered. Okay, that's a pretty fierce argument so far, wouldn't you say? Pretty heartless, considering the condition that Job is in. So Job is going to take one more shot at correcting these guys' theology. And then there's only going to be one more reply, which we'll get to in three weeks, where Bildad is going to say a very short thing. And then that's it. Then Job is finally going to talk about his experience and his knowledge of God. And then Elihu is going to show up. So now Job is going to reply to everything that Eliphaz has just accused him of. Chapter 23. I looked at the clock. Good, we're going to make it. Then Job replied, Even today, my complaint is rebellion. In other words, even the fact that I'm complaining against an absolutely sovereign God is rebellion against the fact that I know he's sovereign. Even my complaining in the condition I'm in, after everything I've been through, after all my loss, even my complaint 
is rebellion because I know that God does whatever God wants to do. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. I can complain all I want, but he's going to do what he's going to do. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? In other words, would he use his almighty power as an argument against me? Then he says, no, surely he would pay attention to me. He'd have pity on me. There, in front of God, at the seat of God, there the upright would reason with him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. It's a really, really interesting theological phrase, and I don't have a whole lot of time to get into it. But here's a quick question. When Jesus died and paid for your sins, he took on the wrath of God so that you would not take the wrath of God. In other words, God delivered you from himself. God is the one who would judge you, who would pour out wrath on you. He's also the one who sent his son to die for you so that you don't stand before him and be judged by his wrath. So he actually saved you from himself because he would have to requite you for your sin. He would have to make you pay. And yet, here's Job saying the very same thing in the oldest book of the Bible back here. The upright are going to reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge, from the one who's judging me, who is almighty God. Verse 8, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns to the right, I cannot see him. In other words, he wants to talk to God. He wishes he could locate God, but everywhere he looks, front, back, right, left, he's not there. How do I find him so that I can make my case? But he knows, verse 10, he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He's retaining his integrity here. He's saying, when God actually tries me, puts me on trial, I'm going to come out like gold. I'm going to be fine because he knows that I'm not guilty. Even though his three friends keep insisting, you must be guilty. Verse 11, he continues to argue for his own integrity. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique. In other words, he's one of a kind. And who can turn him? Nobody can turn God. That's the thing that Nebuchadnezzar came to the realization. That all the inhabitants of heaven, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And no one can stop his hand and no one can ask him, what are you doing? Well, Job comes to the same conclusion. In other words, anybody that deals seriously and honestly with God eventually will reach the point, they have to reach the point 
of realizing that he's absolutely sovereign and he does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it to, whoever he wants to do it to, and that nobody can stop him because he's the Almighty and we're the creatures. My foot held fast to his path. I've kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured his words. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is one of a kind. He is unique. And who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does. There is a reality of God right there. David came to that conclusion. When people say, where is your God? His answer is, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Eventually, everybody comes to that realization, that conclusion. If you're serious about God at all, you have to realize that whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me. I don't have to be guilty. All I have to be is under the hand of what God determined was going to happen to me. And many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. In other words, if he actually showed up, if he actually listened to my plea that I want to make my case before him, if he actually showed up and said, okay, you, what do you got? Talk to me. He says, I'd be terrified. I'd be dismayed at his presence, which, by the way, we see later in the book of Job. When God shows up, God starts out with, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? And Job ends up saying, I abhor myself. I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes because now I see you. And now that I know it's you, I got nothing. I got nothing. And Job knows that instinctively all the way back here in chapter 23. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. And when I think about that, when I consider it, I'm terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not silenced by the darkness nor the deep gloom that covers me. That's where I'm going to leave it for three weeks. Because that's a very good place to stop. Let me give you the positive argument from what we've just read. Whatever you're going through right now. Here, I can put it this way. Has anybody here ever left a church? That would be pretty much everybody in the room. Yeah. Jeff was the only one who said no. <laughs> got <kicked> out. <laughs> you gotten kicked out of churches again? Yeah. Has anybody here ever been <coughs> judged by a church? I, I, my hand's up because I have been. Yeah, well, whatever you're going through, if you're going through something so bad that other people would say, well, you can't be with us anymore because we're the good ones, we're the righteous ones, we're the holy ones, we're the church ones, we're the get out. We can't have anybody like you among us because you're not good. Whatever you're going through, whatever it is, Job's argument is 
Just continue to press back to God. Just continue to have faith that God is going to justify you. Keep trusting that God is your defense. God is your advocate. God's the one who knows. Men don't know. Human beings don't know what's really going on down deep. So have trust that God knows what he's doing because in the end, God is the one who's taking you through the things you're going through. So whether that's financial problems or whether that's health problems or whether that's even marriage problems or whether that's just family problems or whatever you're going through, that is what the God who does whatever he wants to do decided, ordained, was what you were going to go through. And there's no way for you to not go through it. I know right now that Leon is going through something he'd rather not go through right now. How much choice you got? None. None. Isn't that amazing? So why do you have no choice in it? Because God, who's in charge of it, decided this is what you're going to go through. And no matter how much you don't like it, that's what you're going to go through. But even in the midst of the going through it, God hasn't abandoned you. Because you're going through exactly what God determined for you. God has purposes in what he's taking you through. Even though it seems unjust and unfair that Job, the upright man who eschewed evil, should go through this kind of pain, nevertheless, he reaches the point of saying, but if I were to argue against God about it, the very presence of God would terrify me because I realize that this is what he has ordained for me. And that he does whatever he wants to do. And since he does whatever he wants to do, and he did this, then this is what he ordained for me. This is what he decided to do. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened. If he decided something else, he'd have done something else. But he's doing this to me right now in my life because this is what he has ordained for me. Long story short, you're not outside the will of God just because you're having trouble. You're not outside the will of God even when human beings turn their back on you. If you trust in God, if your confidence is in God, if your faith is in God, then he's the one who's ultimately going to lift you up and justify you. And it has to be that way. I would love to help Leon out of his problems. I hope you don't mind that I went back to that. But I would love to help Leon out. Anybody who's having a problem right now, I'd love to help you. You know what I would love? I would love to be able to go right now to Conrad and Marilyn, lay hands on them and heal them. I'd love to do that. The only problem with it is I can't. God can. So their trust has to be in God because he's the only one who can do anything about it. And he's the only one who ultimately will do something about it. So trust God. Put your confidence in God. Know that he is both your advocate and your defense. And that ultimately he's going to try you in a way that you're going to come out like gold. He's going to try you in the fire. But you're going to be redeemed. You're going to be justified. Because God is your defense. And that's what Job keeps going back to. Now his three friends as we just saw, couldn't comprehend it, don't understand it. That's why last week we saw Job saying, God hid it from them. That's why they don't understand it. They don't understand it because the sovereign God won't let them understand it. 
Oh, but their lack of understanding doesn't stop them from talking. <laughs> their lack of understanding doesn't stop them from theologizing and philosophizing and telling Job how guilty he is. But they're wrong, 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 straight down the line because wrong people say wrong stuff all the time. And the right stuff is God knows what he's doing. Trust God. He'll get you through it. You got all that? Amen. Okay, so that's a decent place to stop. We're not here next week because of Christmas or the week after because of New Year's. We'll be back here uh, in three Wednesdays. Anything, any questions about all that? All right, where are you going to be next Wednesday? I don't care. Just don't be here. (laughs) Be somewhere else. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.